Father, we just ask you to bless our study of the word today. And uh, it gets a little complicated, so we just pray for wisdom and that you'd open our eyes to the wonders of the scripture as it tells us what's going to happen over long periods of time from very long ago up until even our future. We ask you for blessing in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, lots of scripture today. So, you can decide whether you want to flip around or, or look. We're mainly going to be in Daniel or just kind of listen or zone out. But I would rather you not zone out if you can help it, okay? <laughs> so, we're coming to this section in 1 John where the Apostle John tells us about the cause for the letter. I mean, we've talked about it several times, but this is the part. But I'm actually not going to get to that part in this part today. So I'm, I'm kind of warning you. Uh, there was an event that was disturbing the churches of Asia Minor over which John presided and it caused some to question their standing with Christ and it made them wonder what, what is a real Christian? What, is, what are the signs of being a real Christian? How do you tell? And they have discovered by sad experience that some who were part of their fellowship, a fellowship that was built on the teaching of the apostle himself, an apostle of Jesus who, who knew Jesus and served him in his ministry and who was personally selected by Jesus to carry forward the good news of his atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world and all the great truths surrounding his coming. But there were some and maybe quite a few, we're not told how many, but one day parts of this church or churches embraced a radically different version of Christianity which denied every major truth that John had taught them. And it just shook the church to a core. So um, we talked about it already in 1 John, but it was the first significant cult to spin off from Christianity in the late first century. John was very old at this time. So if you've been with us, you remember the basic belief of this cult. It was a cult called Gnosticism. Gnostic, Gnostic means knowledge, Gnosis. We, it shows up in a lot of English words today. And the, the basic fundamental doctrine was we, we are all spirits trapped in flesh by a wicked God that made the world. And that God is the God of the Old Testament. That, that's what the Gnostics believed. So the main idea is that spirit is good and the flesh is evil. That was a common Greek idea that was common in the first century religiously in a general way. And this Gnostic cult took it and worked it and kind of put Christian names to it and confused a lot of people. So uh, they said, we don't need forgiveness. We don't need mercy for our sins. We need to be set free from these bodies and so Jesus came with secret knowledge and if you imbibed his secret knowledge which only this group could tell you then you would be set free from your the imprisoned soul that you have and this prison house called the body and of course there's a logic to it because uh, often we do feel like we're imprisoned in our flesh it, uh, it makes us do things we don't want to do and it puts bad things in our heads and like we'd be nice to get out of it and if we're hurting and struggling and all the more so right so they're tapping into a real human need there it was just completely bogus everything they said about it so um, they said Jesus did not die on the cross for sins he didn't die at all on the cross and sin is not our main problem so they reinvented Christianity not based on the real Jesus but on a reimagined Jesus that was constructed out of these current ideas of the time people always want to reinvent Jesus to fit the age they live in or the current philosophy that's so common and uh, we don't want to ever, ever be guilty of that. But people are doing it today, too. Uh, this thing called progressive Christianity does exactly that very thing today. 2,000 years later, still going on. So there's nothing new about that. Um, 
The world is always trying to adapt to Jesus so that you won't believe in the real Jesus. It's always trying to do that. So John has clearly explained the believer's relationship to the world. So I'm not going to go back all through chapter 1 and all the great things he said there about this issue. But we were, we've been looking. Last week we looked at, painfully for some, last week we looked at um, John chapter 2 verse 17, do not, uh, 15, I mean, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And as he explains what will last and will not last in verse 17 of chapter 2, the world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides or remains, that's what that means, remains forever. So then John begins verse 18 by developing the idea that the world is passing away in the light of this current situation that they're sort of dealing with right there. He wants to talk about the idea of the world passing away and what's coming. And yes, some these professing Christians abandon the faith for this lame knockoff and they discarded everything that Jesus is and, and that's they traded him for a, a man-made substitute, so that perfectly fits with what John says is going to happen to the world. In other words, the future of the world. In other words, what was going on then is going to be true as the ages of this world draw to a conclusion and a new age is born under the Messiah. That's, that's where he's going, so that's why I'm bringing all this to bear here. So he starts with something that they should know, something that he taught many times about, and um, it's in verse 18. Children, he says, it is the last hour. It is the last hour and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming. I'm going to stop right there. So it's a really interesting way for John to start this sort of section. It's the last hour. Now the New Testament consistently takes the position that the return of Christ could happen at any time. So it's sort of always the last hour. We live in the last hour. John is writing um, more than 50 years probably after the resurrection of Jesus. He's very old. He's very old. And he knows that the coming of Christ is imminent. It could happen at any time. Um, the gospel is spreading. He's very old. I don't know if you remember, but at the very end of John's gospel, there's sort of a a chapter added on. I mean, it's not it's supposed to be there, but it's chapter 21. It's like the gospel sort of ends, and then he gives this uh, more detailed chapter about uh, an issue that came up about uh, the world not uh, John living to the end of all time or whatever, that kind of a thing, and he's trying to kind of correct that, so he has this extra chapter added on to the end of the gospel. But at the end of that chapter, uh, Jesus tells Peter that when he is old, they're going to lead him to a place where he does not want to go. And it's Jesus prophesying about Peter's martyrdom. I don't know if you know, but he was crucified in Rome upside down as far as we know according to history. And, Jesus, and then Peter points to John and he says, well, what about this man? <laughs> Typical apostle's thing to do, right? What about this guy? And because they were two, they were the last two of the inner circle, you know, they were the, the I mean, there were three and the inner circle and they were, they were two and they were the ones that were going to live longer. But anyway, and Jesus says to Peter, he says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So this story sort of started that John wouldn't die until the second coming happened. He was kind of writing this to tell us that that's not true. He didn't say that. He just said, what if? He said, if I decide, you know, um, that he remain until I come. He's not saying he is going to uh, remain until I come. He's saying it. But anyway, 
all these decades later, uh, uh, Peter was martyred about in the 60s AD, and he, now we're talking probably the 90s, the late 80 or early 90s AD, so it's years after Peter was martyred. So for John, there was always kind of maybe an extra possibility that Jesus would come back during his lifetime, just because of that incident that happened at the end of the gospel. But we know it's going to be much longer, because John did die, and I visited his grave in, in Turkey, and uh, every generation of believers is supposed to have that expectation that Jesus could come at any time, because we don't know, and uh, we're told we're, we're not to know. In fact, Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2 that we are all to be, quote, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, our, and of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's basic Christianity, looking towards the future with Christ when he comes. So we're all living still in the last hour. And John says, we have heard that Antichrist is coming. He says, you have heard, you've been taught that Antichrist is coming. Now, let me just ask you a question. Does it feel like the world is advancing towards a peaceful, loving planet? Does it just kind of have that feel? Um, well, yeah, it does. <laughs> Only Nathaniel would say yes to that. <laughs> You're back just to plague me, I know. <laughs> No, it really doesn't feel like that. And why not? Why doesn't it feel like that? I mean, the world is plagued with ideologies and national ambitions that make conflict sort of inevitable. I know that. But somebody, somebody said one time that peace is when everybody stops to reload, which is, which is sort of true. I mean, it, it's kind of the way the world works. So in 1948, to solve all of the world's problems, they built the United Nations headquarters in New York City and started this grand organization after the global war we had and all of that, two global wars, the second global war we had. It's going to fix everything. And they took a Bible verse and carved it into this building where the UN headquarters is still there. And you know what the verse said? They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's beautiful. It's, it's from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It's lovely. And they thought, thank you, sir. And <laughs> they thought they were going to achieve that, right? That's, that's our purpose. Now, I don't know if you've been following the UN lately. They're not very good at what they're doing. <laughs> Massively corrupt. In fact, some of the worst, most corrupt, evil countries on the world are in charge of a lot of departments in the UN. It's, it's a complete disaster. But anyway... You mentioned this young man in the front wisely mentioned context. <laughs> so I want to read you the whole passage and uh, just kind of see how these words actually fit into what God is saying. So you can take God's word out of context and slap it on a building and say, that's what we're going to do without him. This is uh, Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 2. Now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Talking about Jerusalem. And will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. 
For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. See how context matters? When Christ is here on earth, then that will happen. Human beings will not create that. Even if they want to desperately, they won't be able to do it without the Lord or without the word of the Lord or following the ways of the Lord. And then, right after that, Isaiah extends an invitation to Israel. This is in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 2. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Does the United Nations walk in the light of the Lord? Do member states even think about walking in the light of the Lord? No, they really don't. They really don't. They're just scrambling and fighting and making all kinds of messes. So their faith is in man uh, apart from the Lord. They're just stealing the Lord's promise from Isaiah. That's all. I should probably mention that um, the UN fails so badly at this that it, it actually, it's actually coming to an end. You know, when I was in Haiti years and years ago, they wanted, you know, the blue helmets were there, the UN guys to kind of keep peace and stuff like that. And, and the Haitians actually said, we want the United States Marines here because all these guys do is go to the internet cafe and look at porn. So, I mean, it was like, it wasn't like they were doing anything. They were just there. And uh, they actually said they prefer having the Marines there because they were there at one time and kept the peace. But anyway, the UN isn't very good at what it does. So why? Why is that? Why is the problem with structures or is the problem with humans? Well, the Bible would say the problem is with humans because man walked away from God and followed the tempter and mankind does that still and falls for all of his silly schemes and the world pursues peace without God. He, they pursue things that only God can give that are good and it will continue to do that. The world will continue to pursue those things without God with, with a greater ferocity and a greater antagonism towards God. That's what's going to happen. So it's going to get worse, not better. And John says Antichrist is coming. So John starts with this and, and something they've been taught. Again, verse 18, you heard that Antichrist is coming and even now many Antichrists have appeared. That's the part that's interesting. You heard that Antichrist is coming and now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. In other words, the, this is how we know Christ is coming back and, and we're waiting for that. So he mentions this singular person, Antichrist, and he's saying to understand today's Antichrists, these plural usage of that term, which we'll look at next week, okay? But uh, we have to understand the coming of the Antichrist. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at that. So, in fact, 1 John 2.18 is the place where we get the name Antichrist. Because he has a lot of different names in the Bible. But that's where we get that one. And that's the one that's kind of caught on, at least in modern times. But um, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness in 1 Thessalonians 2.3. The book of Revelation calls him the beast. The beast. So he's coming. He's not here now, but uh, these other antichrists are. John says they're running around. So 
there's a lot to unpack here and John characteristically for him I told you he uses really simple language you know elementary school verbiage uh, for clarity's sake so um, we're just going to take him at his word and then kind of unpack that with other scriptures this morning so so they've heard about Antichrist and he's an individual man so what did they know about him well I'm sure he doesn't say anything about him in this text but so we're going to look at all the places where it does talk about him in some detail so uh, the book of Daniel is the great big picture prophetic book in the Bible where this individual is introduced and quite a bit is said about him there so we have to start in Daniel okay a lot of parallels between Daniel and the book of Revelation in terms of language. Who wrote the book of Revelation? John, that's right, the guy that wrote this letter that we were talking about, same guy. So, and, and when he wrote the book of Revelation, which was revealed to him, of course, by Christ, um, there's a lot of parallels to the book of Daniel, all right? So, John was chosen by Christ at the end of the apostolic age to receive this amazing vision of Jesus about the last years of planet Earth leading to the return of Jesus in power and glory. So the revelation to John actually completes the New Testament and explains Daniel's prophecies in the Old Testament in the light of Jesus as the Messiah. So let's start in Jan Daniel chapter 7. That's where we're going to look first. And Daniel relates, a prof I'm going to be bouncing around in this chapter so just hang with me, okay? Daniel chapter 7, um, he's talking about this dream that he has. And I'm not going to go into super detail about it, but it's a dream about beasts, four beasts. So um, in verse 2, Daniel says, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred up. They were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now I can't get into all of that this morning because I would take the whole time, but um, it's really clear that these beasts represent nations, world empires, okay? That's what they're about. The first empire is the one he's a part of, Babylon. That's the first beast. The second beast is the empire that followed Babylon that Daniel also lived into and, and died in, the Medo-Persian empire which conquered Babylon. Babylon was extremely powerful but very short-lived and then the Medo-Persians took over and handled things quite a bit longer. The third beast is the Greek Empire after the conquests of some guy named Alexander who took over the world practically. And the fourth is plainly the greatest and the longest lasting empire of all and that's the Roman Empire. Now that's long after Daniel's time but he's receiving information from God and God knows the future so he, he tells him all about this. So even though the fourth beast is the farthest away in the future from Daniel's own time it's the most important and it's the most detail is given about that fourth empire. It's not an accident that Jesus was born into the Roman Empire as a completely unimportant person, but the person we talk about from that time the most, right? Everybody does. So even though the fourth beast uh, was far away, we get all this information. So if you look down to verse 23, because it kind of explains it right there, then we're going to go back up again, so just run with me here. The, verse 23 Thus he said, the fourth beast will be the fourth kingdom on the earth. So the vision is being explained to Daniel. Which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, we'll come back to that in a minute. It's not a ten horn, that's ten horns. <laughs> 
Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, individuals, leaders of nations, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. So we're talking about a he. We're talking about an individual person. And this describes him in verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High. He's going to speak out again. He's going to be an anti, openly anti-God person. It used to be like kind of impossible to think of uh, world leaders being openly anti-God. Now it's pretty common. So uh, it's not hard to imagine. And he will wear down the saints of the highest one. That means he's going to persecute God's people. He will intend to make alterations in time and in law. That's really interesting. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. That court is a court in heaven, which is earlier in Daniel 7. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and the dominions will serve and obey him. Okay, does that make sense? So now the dominion of the highest one, that brings the fourth kingdom's reign to a close. And who's going to do that? Well, if you back up to verse 13, it actually explains it. You, you get a vision of the heavenly court in verse 13. Now remember that Jesus always called himself the son of man. Yes, he always called himself that. There's a reason. So in verse uh, Yeah, we'll look at verse, yeah, let's look at verse 13. And uh, let me read that for you. There it is. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. So the ancient of days is God sitting on a throne and was presented before him. And then verse 14, and to him was given dominion, so this is to the Son of Man, dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So down near the end of the chapter we were reading about the fourth beast and his kingdom. It's going to give way to the kingdom of the Messiah here. So that's where the world is going. But the fourth kingdom, the one that will be replaced by the Messiah, of course many scholars believe will be a final form of world government that will be some form of kind of a recapitulated Roman Empire. Because the Antichrist emerges from the fourth beast. And clearly that fourth beast is Rome. Now, you might go, what? Roman Empire? You mean way back then, like thousands of years ago, guys wore those funny helmets and all that? Yeah, Roman Empire? How could that happen? Don't think that that is that crazy. Do not think that. Long after the ancient city fell, the Roman Empire in the eastern side of the Roman Empire in Constantinople lasted another thousand years. And interestingly, even in the west where the city of Rome was after Rome fell in the 5th century, in 800 AD, Charlemagne, you ever heard of Charlemagne? On Christmas Day, they put a crown on his head and declared him the Holy Roman Emperor. 
And there was a holy Roman emperor over Europe, over many parts of Europe. He didn't have a whole lot of power because it was kind of depending on other things, but he was acknowledged as, in fact, Martin Luther stood before the holy Roman emperor in his time. There was a holy Roman emperor all the way until 1806 when an Alexander the Great type character named Napoleon Bonaparte conquered all of Europe and brought that to an end. Well, when Napoleon was defeated by Wellington and the Battle of Waterloo and all of that happened, then um, they tried to re-establish the Holy Roman Empire. So about 1871, they, they put together another Holy Roman Empire, and it didn't last. World War I crushed that. And that was called, the, and the Germans called that the Second Reich. And then this guy showed up, what was his name? <laughs> to establish the Third Reich. His name was Adolf Hitler. So Third Reich is actually a, a, a recapitulation or an effort to reestablish the Holy Roman Empire as it was under Charlemagne in 800 AD. That's what it was. Now there's people alive today that lived under the Third Reich. So don't think, ancient Romans, what's that got to do with the modern world? There's got a lot to do with the modern world. And there just seems to be this historical desire in Europe to reassert the Roman Empire. And it's going to happen someday. If we're reading this correctly, and I think it's really clear, that's going to happen someday. So it's not so ancient, huh? <laughs> not so ancient. So the Bible says a new effort will be made to do this, um, the Roman Empire, and this, a confederation of states, and one man will come to dominate it, a kind of savior. Can you imagine, just imagine, just think about the world and conditions today, what would the world do if somebody actually rose up? I mean, just look at the presidents we've had and stuff. If somebody actually rose up that could really solve problems, that was a very dynamic person, that even solved like just two or three major problems, what would the world do? You want to have our other problems? You, whatever you say. I, I can easily see that happening. And that's the kind of person this guy's going to be. So when you talk about anti-Christ, anti can mean against, and it can also mean as a substitute for. And I think he's both. He's obviously anti-Christ, against Christ, but he's not going to appear as some kind of monster. He's going to appear as some kind of savior, an alternative savior, the kind of savior the world really does want, a, a non, the, the, the kind of savior the UN wants. You know, a, a, a savior separated from the light of the Most High and following God. So uh, he'll be that kind of person, a bringer of order, a peacemaker. Hitler himself was a peacemaker. That's how he got elected. He's going to bring peace to the world. So this man appears in Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. And uh, I'm going to pick it up at verse 7. And this is the first description of the fourth beast. Okay, I kind of read you the latter part of it later, but um, th I'm backing up now. Verse 7. I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. Now remember, horns can represent states or they can represent rulers of states, kings. Okay? The, the three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Okay, so three kingdoms are going to be 
uprooted by him and he's going to take over that area. And then so, um, so this little horn is a person and he boasts of great things. And then go down to verse 19. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast which was different from the others exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze which devoured, crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts that was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So again, back to verse 24 there. And the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, individual, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, there it is, and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in time and in law, and they will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. I'll come back to that in a minute. So the little horn is a ruler. He's a man. He's a man with so much power he can remake the calendar. They're going to give him the times. So it'll be like BB and AB, you know, before beast and after beast or something like that. <laughs> Probably not going to call it that, but <laughs> they're going to they're going to change the world's chronology to mark his arrival. The French Revolution tried to do something like that. Didn't work out very well. So he's not going to call himself the beast, but he will oppose God's people and he will speak out against the Most High, the living God. And of course, again, that might be shocking that somebody could do that, but I can easily see world rulers doing that today. It's easy to see that. So, go to chapter 11. Then we have a more detail about him. Daniel chapter 11. Oh, we're doing good. The king, then the king, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. There's quite a lot of detail there. Interestingly, he won't have any desire for women. Now, that could mean several things. He doesn't, he's not interested, or uh, he, he's, he's so perfect that in his own eyes that nobody's worthy of him. It could mean that, or, or it could mean that he's against everything natural, which we see in our world today, too. So every corruption he will embrace. He'll defile God's created order in every way he can. So can you handle just one more Daniel passage? One more for today? Okay, back up to Daniel chapter 9. This is the most stunning and important prophecy about Jesus in Daniel and maybe in the Bible. So the Daniel prophecy is, this prophecy is introduced differently from all the others. It's introduced in a way to super highlight it. Like, look at this everybody, don't forget this. It's like no other prophecy is given with so much preparation for its coming. So most of Daniel chapter 9 is, is a prayer. It's Daniel praying to God on behalf of Jerusalem and his people and confessing their sins over and over in great detail. It's a long prayer. It's a great model prayer to confess your sins because that's what he's doing in the whole thing. You think, well, that's really nice. You know, where's that going? 
Why do they have this giant chapter there? Well, this prayer of confession and repentance for all of Israel's many years of idolatry and sin and rebellion against God and, and their religious leaders and their political leaders, it, it goes all the way from verse, nine, verse 4 to verse 19. Verse 4 to verse 19. It's a long prayer. And then this incredible thing happens. You were warned about that, young lady. <laughs> it's okay. Daniel is visited by the angel Gabriel. Now, how many prayers have you made that Gabriel appeared? How many prayers has anybody made in the Bible where Gabriel appears? Well, not very often. He appeared to a little girl named Mary one time. He doesn't show up very often. So it's a prayer of confession and repentance. And this angel shows up. Verse 23. It's sort of in the middle of verse 23. The angel says, You are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding from the vision. So he's going to be receiving a vision in answer to his prayer about Jerusalem and, and the restoration of Jerusalem. Remember, he's in Babylon. They're in captivity. He's praying for the restoration of his people. And God says through this angel, give heed to the message and gain understanding from the vision. So the message is about the Messiah. And he's going to give the date when Messiah will arrive Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Wow. That's like everything. Atonement for sin, everlasting righteousness, the glorious kingdom of the Messiah, the exaltation of Jerusalem. And they just have to wait 70 weeks? Well, the word weeks is just the word seven. So it could be translated weeks, and it is that way. It's called the 70 weeks prophecy. But it's 70 sevens is what it is. So what are the sevens? This is what the text actually says, verse 25. So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks or seven sevens and 62 sevens, right? So he says seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many is that? It's 69 weeks, right? 69 sevens. So you can start counting from a decree to restore Jerusalem. Now the decree to re rebuild Jerusalem, mentioned in verse 25 here, was made in 444 BC, as far as we can tell, in the month of Nisan by the Persian king Artaxerxes. It's in Nehemiah chapter 2. That's what that chapter begins with. So guess what? If you count these seven sevens as years, seven 70 years, on this case 69 years leading up to Messiah, it works out to the day that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem and presented himself as the Messiah and was hailed as the son of David. It, it literally goes down to that day. So the Messiah shows up. That's 69 weeks. Now all this exciting stuff has to happen in 70 weeks, right? Seven, seven, 70 sevens or the 70th seven. We've only got up to 69 weeks. So Messiah is going to do all of these things, but shockingly, 
in verse 26 here, Gabriel says something awful is going to happen at the end of the 69 sevens. Messiah will be cut off, he says. What? Killed. Killed. Before the 70th seven, Messiah will be killed. And then horror upon horror, he says Jerusalem will be destroyed. Verse 26, in the middle there. He says the people of the prince who was to come are going to destroy it. Now, he doesn't say the prince is going to destroy it. The, print, the people of the prince who is to come are going to destroy it. Who is the prince who is to come? Well, that's Antichrist. We've been talking about him. Who are his people? Well, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman Imperial Army. And Israel ceased to be a nation on the planet until 1948, right after the Third Reich came to an end. And now Israel's a country again, but it wasn't a country from AD 70 all the way till modern times, 1948. So Daniel's writing in the fifth century BC. Well, how did he know that? Well, God speaks to prophets and God knows everything. So he told him all of that. And it doesn't say the Antichrist is going to destroy Jerusalem in AD 70. It says the people of the prince who is to come is going to destroy Jerusalem. He hasn't come yet. And that's why John is saying after the destruction of Jerusalem when he's writing the little letter, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. He still hasn't come. But his people did that work. The people he'll belong to. So now the big question is, well wait a minute, there's another seven there. What happened to that? Where, where's the final seven years? So Messiah's cut off, A.D. 33, cruelly put to death. Now that had to happen. Why did that have to happen? That's a key part of Messiah's work in verse 24 of Daniel here. Had to be accomplished to make atonement for iniquity. Christ died for our sins. He died for the sins of the world, as John says in his little letter. So he was cut off on Passover as an atoning sacrifice, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And only He could save us by His perfect life being offered as a sacrifice for us. So that's what He did. He was cut off. But, John would tell you, I saw Him alive three days later. So He rose from the dead. And John saw Him very much alive on Sunday. So He lives and He will accomplish all of those things in verse 24 when he comes back. He's going to finish the rest of the work. And the Bible is really clear about that. If you read everything Jesus says about the end of the age. Now we can't forget Daniel chapter 9's last verse. Verse 27. And he, he is the prince who is to come. He's going to remake the empire. He's the antichrist. He's going, to be a, he's going to pretend to be a friend of God's people and then he's going to try to destroy them. Another interesting thing about these Antichrist characters in history or people like them, Mr. Hitler, they hate Jews. It's just really common. There was Antiochus Epiphanes even before the time of Christ who hated the Jews and did all kinds of horrible things. People thought he would, might be that person and Hitler hated the Jews. It's, the Russians hated the Jews. It's just kind of amazing how that kind of keeps going. But anyway, verse 27, he, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Okay, what's a week? It's seven years. But in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years. 
He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. He's going to try to destroy the Jews. Christ is going to come. He's going to destroy him and all the armies that he has. So a firm covenant with the Jews for one seven, that's seven years, but it, he's going to break it and turn brutally against them in the middle of that seven years. I don't know how that's going to happen or what's going to happen. I'm assuming he's going to make some promises to them about rebuilding a temple for them and that that will happen because there is a temple at the end of the age and the, and the Jews are all ready to build it. It's just a little problem. The Muslims are in the way. <laughs> so he's going to somehow fix that problem and we don't know anything about that but that's how it's going to happen some, in some way. It's going to happen. They're going to have their temple. Now this whole thing about time times and half a time. Where does that language appear again in the Bible? It's not in Ezekiel. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Rome. No, it's the book of Revelation. <laughs> Isn't it funny how that language appears again in the book of Revelation? In fact, there's a lot of language in the book of Revelation that talks about three and a half years. Look it up for yourselves. 42 months is talked about a couple of times. 1260 days, which is three and a half years, is talked about a couple of times. And then this expression, time, times, and half a time, which clearly if you're interpreting it along with those other things is three and a half years. One year, two years, plus a half a year. So the Bible has this incredible unity between this very ancient book of Daniel and a much less ancient book of Revelation, which came hundreds of years later. And it's telling, the, it's filling out the story with regard to the Messiah that did come according to Daniel's, the prophecy given to Daniel in chapter 9. So the Messiah came, he's going to come again. The Bible has this incredible unity and we're kind of out of time. So that was the introduction to, to my sermon. Okay, so come back next week and you'll have the actual sermon. So what we'll do is next week we'll talk about the book of Revelation. By the way, when things start up again in September on Friday nights, we're going through the book of Revelation. So we were kind of up only about chapter 5 right now. So you might want to come for that. And then next week we'll see how John uses Antichrist and Antichrists, plural, together. So that's, that's sort of the key. That's what I was supposed to be talking about today. But this, this happened instead. So um, who are the many Antichrists? And are they around still today? That's the question we're going to answer next time. Let's pray. Lord, all things are in your hands. The times and the ages. All things serve you. All things serve your great plan. Your plan to expose the horrors of sin. Your plan to redeem and save many millions of people. Sinners like us. Your plan to reestablish a righteous kingdom on the earth. That never happened because man fell. May we be faithful to you in dark times. Help us let this world go so we can faithfully serve your coming kingdom as true ambassadors. This we pray in the name of the true king, Jesus. Amen.